0: The American POTUS podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, John Adams, this crotchety, stubborn, outspoken lawyer just might be the MVP of the Founding Father team. He used the power of his mind and his sharp tongue to inspire our revolution and help create the Constitution. He became president under tough circumstances, never quite able to get out of the long shadow of George Washington. He lost his bid for a second term and that's when his greatest contribution may have taken place the precedence of a peaceful transfer of power. The Colossus of Independence, John Adams, is next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. To help us get into this critical founding father, POTUS number 2, is R.B. Bernstein, one of the nation's most respected authors on American constitutional history. He received his B.A. from Amherst College and his law degree from Harvard Law School. Currently, he is a distinguished adjunct professor of law at New York Law School and lecturer in law and political science at the City College of New York's Colin Powell School for Civic and Global Leadership. He's written several books on the founders of American government, including The Education of John Adams, which we will link to on our AmericanPOTUS.com website. Richard, we're thrilled and honored to have you join us here on American POTUS.
1: Well, I'm delighted that you thought you'd want to talk
2: to me. Richard, thanks for joining us. I've really enjoyed this book, and I always find John Adams endlessly fascinating and truly, truly enjoyed the education of John Adams. Let's start early on. You show us how a young John Adams considered several possible careers, if I remember correctly, even possibly being a doctor. What what eventually led him to a career in the law?
1: Well, John Adams was a, um, he was an 18th century kid, and he was originally intended by his parents to go into the ministry, which is what happens when you're a Congregationalist Protestant in uh, Massachusetts. But Adams... Decided for theological reasons that the ministry probably was not a good idea for him. So he looked at two other um, careers. One was medicine and the other was law. Now law, because John Adams was interested in history, law is a very historical field. So John Adams' interest in history naturally pushed him into having an interest in law. Also, John Adams was really interested in making and uh, responding to arguments. And the law is a career that requires you to be good at arguing and answering (laughs) arguments.
2: And he became a very good lawyer.
1: He became an excellent lawyer. He became probably the best lawyer in Massachusetts and one of the best lawyers in the country. So John uh, set aside his hopes for a career as a minister, and his short-lived interest in his career as a doctor, and decided that the law suited him, and uh, he discovered that he the law suited him, and he suited the
2: law. So we know as as he uh, proceeded in his legal career and made a name for himself, he took more and more of a role in the in the ongoing discussions about the the uh, actions of the Parliament and King George that that were. It was growing anger throughout the colonies, and especially in Massachusetts. And at that point, Adams was among the leaders in providing arguments detailing the colonists' rights as Englishmen. So, what were those arguments, and how were they countered by the British leadership?
1: Well, John Adams was like most Americans in that he believed that there was no real difference between people who were English subjects who were born on the left side of the Atlantic Ocean, in other words, in the New World, in British North America, and those who were born on the right side of the Atlantic Ocean in Great Britain, the mother country itself. British um, polemicists, British um, lawyers, British government officials believed that people who were born in Great Britain were true British subjects, And people who were born in the colonies were colonists who were outranked by British subjects. Now, John Adams didn't believe that. He believed whichever side of the Atlantic Ocean you were born on, if you were um, a citizen or actually a subject of the uh, the British realm, you were equal. You were equal on the old side of the new world or on the new side of the new world. You were an equal, and you had rights, and those rights were equal whichever side of the Atlantic Ocean you were born.
2: Well, you show that Adams, as he took part in the first and second Continental Congresses, you say that Adams and the other delegates were learning how to be American. How did Adams at that point help define the new nation being created in those very early days of the Revolution?
1: Well, Adams was really committed to arguing that there were two kinds of British subjects and they were equal. There were British Americans and there were Brits. There were people who lived in the mother country and there were people who lived in British North America, but they were equal. In particular, they were equal in terms of their rights and they were equal under the unwritten English constitution. And so until 1775, when the British and the Americans actually exchanged shots uh, at the battles of Lexington and Concord, Adams was convinced that there was no need to distinguish Americans from Brits, but that all people who were subjects of King George III and subjects of the unwritten English constitution were equal. It was only when the British actually shot at Americans That Adams said, all right, if they're going to treat us that way, we're going to have to be Americans. We're going to have to embrace independence. Uh, We have no choice in the matter. They're driving us out, and thus we're going to have to accept that they're driving us out. And that's why Adams decides to accept that Americans were indeed Americans and not just Mm -hmm. British Americans.
2: I'll step back a bit his amazing wife, Abigail, we know this was an amazing partnership, a love affair. What what did Abigail teach John and vice versa?
1: Well, the two of them learned simultaneously that they were husband and wife, that they were equals, that they were in what um, historians call a companionate marriage, a marriage in which the husband and the wife were pretty much equal, intellectual equals. John learns to listen to Abigail, Abigail learns to listen to John. And they were in many ways, um, a really, how shall I put it? They were far ahead of their time. They were far ahead of their time in that they really did see each other in some ways as political, intellectual and social equals and thus John really grew to respect and admire Abigail, and she always respected and admired him, but they saw each other as equals. They argued with each other. They treated each other as um, counterparts. They did not treat each other as one being absolutely superior and the other absolutely inferior. They didn't see things that way at all. In fact, At the end of her life, when Abigail Adams is seeing that she's going to die soon, she actually writes her own will, which most people in even the independent United States, most women did not see themselves as being entitled to write their own wills, but Abigail did. And then when she died, John insisted on submitting Abigail's will for probate, which again was really unusual. But John insisted that Abigail should have a right to have her will seen as the will of someone who's entitled to have it admitted for probate.
2: Very interesting, and this um, a very, very fascinating relationship. Now, let's let's step back. A real, uh, a interesting comparison you make in the book is between Adams, who you call the prophet of American constitutionalism, and James Madison, who's often called The father of the Constitution. How did they approach the philosophy of governance differently?
1: Well, John Adams was a student of what we now call comparative constitutional law. He saw various countries and various people as having different approaches to how you write a Constitution, what it contains, what it teaches, how it protects rights and responsibilities, how it defines government. James Madison. By contrast, he wanted to create an American constitution. Adams was not necessarily someone who was wedded to creating an American constitution, although he did create the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, which was the most elaborate and most literary and most sophisticated of all the state constitutions. But John Adams was wedded to the idea of a constitution that was basically a constitution that had been born from the unwritten English constitutional system. James Madison was perfectly willing to undertake framing a new constitution, one that might be indebted to previous models, but was instead a new constitution. So when James Madison gets hold of John Adams' big book, The Defense of the Constitutions of Government, and he reads volume one, he's very disappointed because he sees John Adams' book as not answering any of the questions he wants answered. He wants a new approach to writing a constitution, and he tells Thomas Jefferson in a letter that he's read John's book, and he says, men of learning find nothing new in it. Men with taste will find many things to criticize, and men without either will find not a few things that they won't understand. What Madison's complaint was, was that John Adams' book is answering the wrong questions. John has a, James has a different set of questions. How do you write a new constitution, one that addresses such questions as federalism? You have states, and you have a federal government, and the states have their rights and responsibilities and their structure of government. And the federal government has its rights and responsibilities and its structure of government. John Adams didn't quite understand that. James Madison did. So Madison was disappointed that John Adams did not provide, as he saw it, answers that he could use in framing an American form of government.
2: But as you note in the book, even though Adams was on that side of that equation, and though he didn't attend the Constitutional Convention, he still had... A good amount of influence there. How did he influence those proceedings? Well, he
1: influences those proceedings through two publications. One is a pamphlet that he writes in 1776 called Thoughts on Government. And the second is that big book, The Defense of the Constitutions of Government. And then, of course, there's a third thing that he writes. He is the principal writer of the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780. And in addition to all the other stuff, that the Founding Fathers used to craft the US Constitution, they choose to listen to two particular state constitutions. They listen to the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780 and the New York Constitution of 1777. And they draw on both of those documents as sources of useful ideas on how to frame a constitution. So they're listening to Adams, they're listening to John Jay, and they're listening to their colleagues and they're listening to the ancient uh, ideas about constitutions from the Greeks and the Romans and the constitutional ideas from the British. They're mixing together a whole set of constitutional ideas. And one of the people they listen to in doing that is John Adams. So even though he's not in Philadelphia, he's the absent framer. He's the guy whose ideas help power what James Madison and his colleagues do in Philadelphia in 1780.
2: In that new structure of government that the Constitution created, of course, Adams was our first vice president and then president after Washington. And you show that in those two roles, he grew increasingly out of touch with American intellectual and cultural beliefs about democracy. So how did that divergence affect Adams both politically and personally? Well,
1: personally, it frustrated him. And politically, it frustrated him. Mm -hmm. I mean, he basically saw himself as a great master of understandings of constitutional government, and he was. But like all of the founding guys in this period, and it's true of all of them, It's true of John Adams, it's true of Jefferson, it's true of Madison, it's true of Hamilton, it's true of John Dickinson, it's true of Thomas Paine, it's true of John Jay, it's true of Washington and John Marshall. All these men have different understandings of how a constitution should work and what a constitution should be. And each man, it feels that the other guys don't get it. He's the only one who gets it. And uh, right. all of them have different views of what a constitution should be and how it should work, whether they're responding to the American constitution drafted by the founding guys in Philadelphia in 1787, or the other guys who draft other constitutions. John Jay drafts the New York constitution. John Adams drafts the Massachusetts constitution. George Mason and James Madison draft the Virginia constitution. They're all responding to different ways of writing constitutions and different ways of understanding what a constitution should be and do. And as a result, there's a whole raft of different forms of constitutions that they're all listening to and they're all guided by. And there's a spectrum of understandings of constitutionalism and all those that whole spectrum of of ways of understanding constitutions help inform how all the American people respond to the challenge of governing themselves under the U.S. Constitution of 1787.
2: So once President Adams is in in the White House, he is known in part for the infamous Alien and Sedition Acts. How did he square that with the ideals of the revolution that he had just been such a, a big part of and of the Bill of Rights? Well, let's
1: keep in mind, first of all, that ideas about liberty of speech and press form, again, a spectrum of different ideas. Uh, John Adams was still a man who believed, along with most conservative Americans who are members of the Federalist Partisan Alliance, that, yeah, there was such a thing as freedom of the press, which meant that there was no prior restraint. You could publish, and the government couldn't prevent you from publishing but the government could then hold you responsible for what you published. Now, there are other people who are more liberal, like Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and George Mason, who believed that government could not try to punish you for what you published, even after you published it. So there are various different ways of understanding freedom of speech and press. So John Adams is one of the more conservative Americans. And thus he goes along with his fellow federalists and they adopt a conservative view of what freedom of speech and press is. And they basically say, look, you cannot criticize the government. You cannot criticize the president. You cannot criticize Congress. And if you do, we will hold you responsible for committing the crime of what is called seditious libel, which is a crime in English law, and we think it's also a crime in American law. Now, the other Americans, the liberals like James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, believe that there is no such thing as seditious libel under the U.S. Constitution. Madison believes there's no such crime as seditious libel, period. Jefferson believes Well, under state law, there's such a crime. So when Jefferson becomes president after John Adams is defeated in the 1800 election, Jefferson at first decides he's going to try using state law to prosecute Federalists for committing the crime of seditious libel under state law. And what happens then is a Federalist, Alexander Hamilton, who at first thought that there was such a thing as seditious libel under the U.S. Constitution. When Hamilton realizes that doesn't work, he then comes along and defends a Federalist who's being prosecuted for seditious libel under state law. And he says, no, any citizen of the United States who who publishes, and he publishes what he thinks is the truth for good motives, can't be prosecuted for seditious libel. And he wins that case. And so there's no more seditious libel, no more after 1804.
2: That's the best explanation of that I've ever heard, because, you know, from our perspective today, no matter what you think of Adam's many accomplishments, it's perplexing to us that he would have supported something like that. But you show that within that kind of constitutional spectrum of, uh, of ideas that it, it made sense to him and to many others to, to put those kind of limitations on there. What, what about the... the um, the restrictions on on immigrants that he supported.
0: Well,
1: it wasn't necessarily that John Adams supported restrictions on immigrants. It was rather that in the late 1790s during Adams's time as president, people who were in the Federalist partisan alliance believed that there were certain immigrants who were dangerous to the constitution of the United States. And so they proposed statutes and John Adams agreed with them and signed those statutes into law. And these statutes were the Alien Friends Act and the Alien Enemies Act. And the Alien Friends Act basically said, you used to think that you only had to stay here for seven years, and then you could become a naturalized citizen of the United States. Well, we're going to say that you have to wait 14 years to become a citizen. And by the way, in those 14 years, the president can deport you. If you, if the president thinks that you are hostile to the Constitution and to our liberties, he can deport you. Now, those Alien Friends and Alien Enemies Acts never actually get enforced during Adams' presidency. The only statute he signs that does get enforced, that's hostile to civil liberties, was the Sedition Act, which is the one about freedom of I speech see. and press.
2: Now, a lot of that happened within the context of the French Revolution, so as you know that that set the whole political firmament here into um a great what's the word ferment um, it, it 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 yeah it, it really yeah it really uh, turned everything upside down here and and in lot, a lot of ways framed the political debates happening in America uh, the response to that revolution in France what what were Adams' views on the French revolution and how did those views kind of Show us a more basic understanding of his views on society well, and government.
1: Adams basically said to Jefferson at one point when they were old men, he said, The first time you and I ever differed was about the French Revolution. You were persuaded in your mind that it was perfectly okay for a government to declare its freedom of 24, 25 million people, 24,500,000 of whom couldn't read or write whereas I thought that such a form of government over such a people made as much sense as a government over the lions and tigers in the royal menagerie at Versailles. <laughs> so Adams yeah, well, believed that the great majority of Frenchmen were not capable of sustaining a free government, and that's what drove him to say that the French couldn't have a free government, and that's what was wrong with it. Now, Adams was different from uh, some Americans. People like Jefferson and Thomas Paine believed that Americans were different from other people in the rest of the world, that Americans were exceptional, that there was this thing called American exceptionalism, that all Americans were different from all Europeans. And John Adams said no. And this is where John Adams was right, and Jefferson and Paine were wrong. Adams believed that all human beings were the same and that they all had the same rights. And Adams did not believe that uh, Americans were uniquely more innocent and better than Europeans. Adams believed that all human beings were equal and they were all the same. And Adams believes that any attempt to set aside Americans as different and special and better was hopelessly mistaken.
2: Would you say it's a correct, a correct statement if if we think that earlier in his life Adams was more worried about the tyranny of, say, the aristocracy, and as he as he grew older, he was in the government, he saw the French Revolution, he became more frightened about the tyranny of the people, or is that just an oversimplification?
1: Uh, no, I think that you're right. I think that. But I don't think that John Adams set aside the tyranny of the aristocracy for the tyranny of the people. I think that John Adams claims both. John Adams was a man who believed that the old unwritten English constitution was the best form of government ever. And that in that old English constitution, what you had was a form of government that was a series of checks on arbitrary power. Arbitrary meaning power without a check. So, for example, in the old 17th century version of the English Constitution, the House of Commons had checks on it from the House of Lords and the King. The House of Lords had checks on it from the House of Commons and the King. And the King had checks on him from the House of Commons and the House of Lords. So there were checks on every part of the government from every direction. And Adams believed that that was essential. Now, Adams believed, for example, that when you had an aristocracy, aristocracies are dangerous, so you have to have a series of checks on the aristocracy. You have to have checks on the king as well, and you have to have checks on the people as well. So that's what John Adams argued, and he argued it to whoever would listen to him. Now, (laughs) excuse me, most people in America listen to Jefferson and Paine. Paine believed that the people would never, ever, ever, ever violate their own liberties. And John Adams said, that's nonsense. The people will violate their own liberties. The people will violate their own liberties if they're given half a chance. So will the aristocracy. So will the monarchy. Everybody will violate their own liberties. You have to remember that a constitution is a system that guards against any group of people in society violating liberties. And so that's John Adams. He's a man who believes that anybody in the society will violate liberties unless they are checked and balanced by the other parts of society and government.
2: And reading recently about Washington and his role In the formation of the Constitution, certainly there was a concern then about the tyranny of state legislatures overstepping, and that that grew the need for a federal government, a national government, to put a check on those state legislatures. That's right. In the 1780s,
1: a lot of Americans who thought in national terms saw the state governments as violating the rights of Americans nationally. And that's why they they supported the framing of the U.S. Constitution. And that's why, ultimately, they listened to James Madison when he said, all right, we have to add to this Constitution a bill or declaration of rights. And that's why the bill or declaration of rights is such an important part of the U.S. Constitution.
2: This is indeed an unfair question because I know it's a much more nuanced issue than this. But at the end of the day, was Adams – a failure or success as president? Well, no, that's a really good question, because you could answer that question both ways. Adams,
1: well, when Adams became president, he made one big mistake. He saw himself as the follower in office of George Washington, and he decided that Washington was the model. And so he had to be a president like Washington. Now, Washington was a, very, was a very coldly formal man and a very um, different kind of man from John Adams. And Adams couldn't be the kind of president that George Washington was. And it was not until George Washington dies in December 1799 that John Adams realizes, okay, my model's gone. I'm going to have to be my own kind of president. And in the last year of John Adams presidency, he's a much better president. He reconsiders the Alien and Sedition Act, and he decides not to pursue the Sedition Act anymore. He decides to um, form peace with France rather than pursue the the undeclared quasi-war with France. He, He has a major league brawl with Alexander Hamilton. And the high Federalists or the Hamiltonian Federalists. And most important of all, when he is defeated for a second term, he basically decides he is going to broker a very, very calm and easy transition from his presidency to the presidency of his uh, successful rival, Thomas Jefferson. That's the first successful transition. After a contested presidential election, Adams loses to Jefferson. Adams wants to make sure that Jefferson will have no trouble taking office as president. And Adams then goes home. In fact, when some of his Federalist colleagues suggest, well, why don't you be a caretaker president and hold the presidency even after your term expires, Adams says, no, the people defeated me. I'm going home. I'm going to oversee a successful transition to Jefferson, and then I'm going home. And he does that. And that is an extraordinarily important thing. I mean, just as George Washington is important because he says, no, I'm only going to serve two terms, and then I'm going home. John Adams says, no, I served one term. I got defeated for re-election. Jefferson will succeed me, and I'm going home. And that's a precedent that all later defeated presidents of the United States have to follow. Every single one, no matter how they feel about being defeated in a presidential election, they all say, okay, fine, I'm going home. In fact, I wrote an op-ed piece about John Adams around the time of Donald Trump, when I feared that Donald Trump would refuse to accept his defeat in 2020, and it turned out I was right. uh, Donald Trump, in some ways, did refuse to accept defeat in 2020. He ultimately, grumpily, had to accept defeat, but he's still trying to carry on as if he wasn't defeated. But he was, and the example that I urged in my op-ed piece that he should follow was the example of John Adams. And so John Adams taught us all. If you're defeated for re-election, you go home.
2: Well, we owe Mr. Adams a lot. Certainly an amazing life he led, but probably nothing more than that precedent he set on the peaceful transition. Now, after he goes home, uh, he's quite bitter for a while, but in his later years, he reestablishes communications with Thomas Jefferson and have these very famous letters going back and forth. What did they talk about in those letters and what do those letters tell us about Adams' view of the world. They talked
1: about everything, anything and everything that came up. They corresponded with each other for 14 years, and they talked about just about any subject that occurred to either one of them. That's why, in many ways, the Adams-Jefferson letters, particularly the second volume covering the period 1812 until their deaths in 1826, is a great masterwork of American literature. Now, John Adams, when he's defeated, And he goes home in 1801 for the first 12 years of his retirement. And he has a long retirement. He has a retirement of 26 years. And he is very upset about his retirement at first. He's really hurt that the American people don't feel that he deserves a second term because he felt he did. Now, keep in mind, John Adams was not swamped in the election of 1800. He lost by only eight electoral votes. He got 65. Charles Pinckney, his running mate, got 64. And Jefferson and Aaron Burr got 73 each. So John Adams actually came in relatively close to Jefferson. But over time, Adams gets used to the idea that he's defeated. And he is writing to various people. He's writing to friends. He reopens friendships. And he reopens, in particular, a friendship with a fellow signer of the Declaration of Independence named Benjamin Rush. And these men have an amazing, amazing uh, correspondence. And they're close friends, and they are extraordinarily um, honest and um, trusting with each other. And then over time, Rush, who's also a deep friend of Thomas Jefferson's, starts saying to Adams, why don't you write to Jefferson? And he says to Jefferson, why don't you write to Adams? And Jefferson is very thin-skinned and humorless. And he basically says, I don't think Adams wants to hear from me. And I don't particularly want to write to him. And I tried writing to Abigail and she basically blew me off. And I don't think that anything's going to come of that. Adams, by contrast, by 1812, Adams says to Rush, I plainly perceive Rush that you've been teasing me to write to Jefferson as you've been teasing Jefferson to write to me. But what should we say to each other? All we will say is to wish each other a good trip to the grave. We're both old men. (laughs) But maybe, maybe time or chance will produce a letter between us. Now, when Adams writes that to Jefferson, to Rush, excuse me, he actually decides, I'm going to do it. The the time he's talking about is only one week. He writes to Ben Rush on Christmas Day, 1812. On New Year's Day, 1813, excuse me, Christmas Day, 1811. On New Year's Day, 1812, he writes a letter to Jefferson. It's this very calm, gentle, friendly letter, and he's sending Jefferson a present. He calls it two parcels of homespun. And I hope you'll be interested in it. What they really are, it's a two-volume set of lectures on rhetoric by John Quincy Adams, who was then a professor of rhetoric at Harvard College. Adams sends Jefferson these volumes, as well as this letter. Now, the letter and the volumes get separated in the mail. And the letter arrives first. And Jefferson is overjoyed to get this letter. And he writes a letter to Adams waxing eloquence about how wonderful it is to hear from Adams, how interesting it is to talk about homespun, but how wonderful it is to hear from a fellow uh, architect of the American Revolution. And then he gets the volumes and he says, oh my, these are great letters. These are uh, great lectures. I'm really impressed. And John Quincy is very smart. And you tell him from me, I'm really impressed. And then Adams and Jefferson just start writing letters to each other. Adams ends up writing four letters for every letter that Jefferson writes to him. And he writes to Jefferson, (laughs) don't worry sir, if I write four letters for y'all one. Y'all one is worth more than my four. But Adams doesn't care, he's just having fun. He's writing whatever he wants. He's writing about all sorts of things. He's writing about the habits of Native Americans. He's writing about the French. He's writing about the French Revolution. He's writing about the American Revolution. He's writing about aristocracy. He's writing about monarchy. And Jefferson's writing back about as many things as Adams is writing to him. And these are both really, really brilliant men. And they're writing brilliant letters. And they're extraordinary letters. I mean, I've read these letters so many times because they're just so much fun to read. And Adams is so much fun to read because he's having fun writing. Jefferson writes more formal letters than uh, Adams. Jefferson's letters are more like essays. Adams' letters are letters. He's just having fun. He's exploring ideas, and he's kicking ideas around. And even when sad things happen, when his daughter, Abigail Adams Smith, died. in in her 40s of breast cancer. And John writes a letter to Jefferson about it, and he's heartbroken. Jefferson writes a letter back, consoling Adams, and Adams is deeply grateful for the letter that Jefferson writes. And then when Abigail Adams falls mortally ill, and Adams was starting out to write a friendly letter to Jefferson, and then writes a sad letter about my partner 54 years, and she was my lover before that, She is in a coma, forbidden to speak or to be spoken to, and I don't know what to do. And Jefferson writes an incredible consoling letter to Adams, and Adams is moved almost to tears by the letter that Jefferson writes. And the two men are really good for each other. And they're amazing for each other, and they're good friends to each other. And that is that is the great excellence, that's the great marvel of this correspondence as they exchange with each other. And as I said, John Adams basically spends the last 14 years of his life writing letters to his friends, in particular to Jefferson, but to his friends. He writes letters to Benjamin Rush, and then poor Rush dies in 1813, and Adams and Jefferson are both heartbroken. And they write letters about how, what a wonderful friend Rush was to both of them. But Adams is an extraordinary man. And he teaches us about his, in his letters, he teaches us how to live and he teaches us how to die. He teaches us how to grow old and be an old man and be an old man who's reconciled to the idea, someday soon I'm going to die. And all right, I'm used to the idea that I'm going to die. I'm going to die an old man, and I'm going to die at peace with the world and at peace with myself. And that's why I read John Adams' letters, and I will always read John Adams' letters, to when I become an old man and have to figure out how to grow old and get used to the idea of my approaching death.
0: Richard, you're making me long for the era of writing letters and not text messages.
1: Well, that's true. Although I suspect that if the internet had been around, Adams and Jefferson would have exchanged extraordinary text messages or emails. <laughs> they, would have, they would have done what they did, but in a different form. But they were amazing. And you know, I just am extraordinarily in admiration of them. And when I write emails to my friends... I write them as the equivalent of letters, and I try to live up to John Adams' model.
0: So, Richard, let's get into the personal side of POTUS number two a little further and see if we can get to know him a little better. Sure. A reminder to everyone, this was a time when the POTUS didn't necessarily choose the vice POTUS. The position was filled by coming in second. Right. So I think it's fair to say Washington respected Adams, But do you think Washington would have chosen him to be his number two man? Or would he have picked someone else?
1: I honestly don't know. That's a question I don't have an answer to. I do know that over time, Washington and Adams occasionally disagreed with each other and occasionally rather vehemently. And um, Washington did not get on all that well with Adams over time. They were president and vice president together for eight years. But over time, they grew more and more distant from each other. And one of the reasons is there are people who say at the time that they're estranged from each other. And John and Abigail feel that they're being blamed for this. And they don't like that they've been blamed for this. And so they defend themselves. And then Washington fires back and so Washington and Adams over time are really distant from each other, and so when Washington steps down, he's really not interested in having a friendship with Adams anymore. He's just not. Adams becomes president in 1796, and as you said, the guy who comes in second in the presidential contest becomes vice president. It's like what you get in an elementary school. I mean. You know, uh, when you're in fourth grade or seventh grade, the teacher holds an election and the first person wins becomes president and the second person who wins becomes vice president and that's it. So that's how John Adams becomes vice president to George Washington and that's how Thomas Jefferson becomes vice president to John Adams. Adams is a little unsure about it. Jefferson basically says to his uh, son-in-law, oh, this is fine. I'm okay with that. The first job, the presidency, that's just a splendid misery. The second job, the vice presidency, that one's honorable and easy. And I'm perfectly happy to be vice president. And John Adams is not too pleased with being president because, as I said, he wasn't sure what kind of president he should be. He's going to try to be like George Washington, but again, he's not quite sure how to do that. He also has another problem. He's got a cabinet. He's got uh Simithin Pickering is Secretary of State. James McHenry is Secretary of War. And uh, Oliver Wilcott is Secretary of the Treasury. And then uh Charles Lee is Attorney General. And Lee's just not um uh, an important figure. It's Pickering, Wilcott, and McHenry that are the big big names. And they are all people who feel indebted to and loyal to George Washington and Alexander Hamilton, not to John Adams. So why does John Adams keep them as his cabinet? Because he feels that if he gets rid of them and appoints people of his own choice, that he's going to be calling George Washington's judgments into question. And he can't do that. He feels he can't do that. But then Pickering and McHenry and Wilcott all act as if John Adams doesn't deserve respect, that they're going to listen to Washington or to Hamilton or to both.
0: Adams was in a very tricky spot.
1: He was in a very tricky spot. In particular, John Adams at one point decides that he's going to spend a good deal of his presidency at home in Quincy, Massachusetts, which had absorbed his hometown of Braintree. And he wants to take care of his wife because Abigail is ill and she's ailing, and he's going to take care of her. So he's in Quincy taking care of her, and he thinks everything's fine because his cabinet members can always write to him, and it only takes a week for their letters to get to him, and it takes a a week for his letters to get to them. Unbeknownst to him, though, Pickering and McHenry and Wilcott are all writing letters to Alexander Hamilton. They're getting advice from a private lawyer in New York, because they're saying to Hamilton, how should we run the government? They're not going to Adams for advice. They're going to Hamilton. And Hamilton is an arrogant twerp who basically says, well, if John Adams is an absentee president and he can't be bothered to run his government, I'll run his government for him. And that's what goes on all through John Adams' presidency. And it's not until after George Washington dies and John Adams decides, well, I'm going to run my own government, thank you very much, that Adams goes to Trenton, New Jersey, where his, uh, his cabinet is taking refuge from the yellow fever in Philadelphia. And he confronts them and he decides, all right, you guys are really a pain in the neck. So he forces James McHenry to quit. And then he makes uh, Timothy Pickering uh, consider quitting, and Pickering says, no, I need the salary, I need this job. And Adams says, fine, I'm firing you. And Adams is the first president to fire a cabinet member. And then he says to Wilcott, you're just running the treasury department, you're not running anything else. So by the end, Wilcott steps down and Adams ends up appointing a new cabinet John Marshall, first as Secretary of War and then as Secretary of State, and Timothy Dexter, first as Secretary of War and then as Secretary of War and Secretary of the Treasury. So in his last year as President, John Adams is his own President, and he does a much better job than he did when he was serving as kind of a quasi George Washington.
0: Type. So, the, so the latter part of his presidency, he was the first POTUS to live in the White House in Washington. Yes. Now, did did he like it? Did he did he like living there? Did he predict how it would become the symbol of the presidency?
1: Well, he predicted it would become the symbol of the presidency. He writes letters to Abigail, and uh, he manages to carve a sentence from that letter into a mantelpiece in one of the rooms in the White House. And the sentence is, I pray that none but wise and honest men ever rule under this roof. So he is perfectly willing to predict that those who live in the executive mansion, they don't call it the White House until Theodore Roosevelt's day in 1900, 1901. Uh, The executive mansion, that is going to be the home of the presidents of the United States. Now, the problem is he is also aware that Washington, D.C. is not a great place to live. It is, a, it is a place which has amazing buildings. It's got the Capitol. It's got the executive mansion. But other than that, it is a very, very Spartan agricultural village. Abigail doesn't like living there. She ends up doing the laundry, and she ends up hanging the laundry up to dry in the East Room. But then she decides to go home, and she doesn't want to come back to the White House. Adams keeps begging her, I miss you. I'm lonely. I wish you were here. I love you. Please come back. And Abigail says, I'm not well enough to come back. I am going to stay in Quincy. And if you want to be with me, you're going to come up to Quincy with me. So at the end of his presidency, John Adams leaves Washington at four in the morning on March 4th, 1801, and he takes a two-week trip by by carriage to get from Washington, D.C., to Quincy, Massachusetts, to rejoin Abigail. And after that, he and Abigail are in Quincy, and they never part again until Abigail dies.
0: Now, Adam's had some very creative nicknames, some of them. The Colossus of Independence, Old Sink or Swim, and even his Rotundity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what kind of nickname could we give him today? Something maybe a little more respectful. Maybe.
1: Well, I don't know what nicknames we'd give him today because he has such a profusion of nicknames uh, that yeah. uh, that we, we'd just be adding to a gigantic trove. But... Uh, <laughs> Most people, I think, would be inclined to call him his rotundity. Now, the reason for his rotundity was this. In 1789, he's vice president, and he proposes to the Senate that the president of the United States needs a title, a grand, big title, because when the House says, no, he's got a title, he's president of the United States, John Adams says, president of the United States? Are you kidding me? There are presidents of fire companies and cricket clubs. So he says what he should have is an august, eminent title. His high mightiness, the president of the United States and protector of their liberties, that's his title. And Madison in the House says no. The Constitution gives him a title, president of the United States, and that's all he gets. And then a senator in uh, the U.S. Senate from South Carolina, Ralph Izard, proposes that we call John Adams his rotundity. (laughs) And that's because John Adams is not a thin man. He's a short, not very thin man. And in particular, he's very different in stature and build from George Washington. Washington is 6'3", and he's a powerfully built man. Adams is 5'8" and he is not thin. He's actually put on some weight by the time he's vice president. And so he gets this nickname, his rotundity, which he's not too (laughs) pleased. I
0: would hope not. All right, so as we talked about a little earlier, much has been made about his love-hate-love relationship with Thomas Jefferson. Oh, yes. Um, Were there other old friends that Adams had alienated and then made up with as he got old? Oh, yes. he Basically... John Adams'
1: friendships are friendships that are sometimes friendships that break up, and then he always finds a way to put them back together. As a young man, for example, uh, when he's in his late 30s or early 40s and he's a delegate to the Second Continental Congress, one of his friends in Congress, a Massachusetts man named John Randolph, who is a Tory, he's a man who does not want to give up his allegiance to the mother country. So he leaves and goes to England. Well, years later, when John Adams is the American minister to Great Britain, he's walking down a street in London, and he runs into John Randolph, and he embraces him, and he says, my old friend, I've missed you. It is so good to see you again. And he's perfectly willing to become friends with him again, even though Randolph is convinced Well, you're the American ambassador from the United States, you're the American minister, and I'm a loyalist, so you probably don't want to be my friend. And Adams says, of course I want to be your friend. And the same is true of Benjamin Rush. Adams writes to Benjamin Rush in 1805 saying, well, we may have had a difficulty in our friendship, but I hope you take me back as a friend. And Rush says, of course I will. And they're friends until Rush dies. And there are other people whom Adams reaches out to and makes friends with. And Adams is a kind of man who his friends really value, especially as an old man when he is, uh, as he is sometimes known, he's the sage of Quincy. And his, his friend Thomas Jefferson becomes known as the sage of Monticello. And the sage of Quincy and the sage of Monticello become pretty much best friends. But John Adams becomes this elderly man who is an extraordinary man. Uh, the 12 years between the time he retired from the presidency and the time he wrote to Thomas Jefferson really transform him and really make him a, a well, what's the word I want? He, he's a good man. He is a good friend. He is a well-intentioned, uh, and well-spirited man, and he's the kind of man who manages to make friends with a great many other people, and he continues as as friends with them
0: until he dies or until they die. Something we can all learn from there. Richard, finally here, my personal opinion here, I find it incredibly peculiar. There is no significant monument in Washington, D.C. for the Adams family as a whole.
1: There is a monument to John Adams in Washington, D.C., The whole thing starts when John Adams, in 1800 as president, signed a statute passed by Congress, creating the Library of Congress. Now, over time, the Library of Congress grows. And by the 1890s, the Library of Congress has a brand new building. It's that amazing building that we now know today as the Library of Congress. And from the 1890s until the 1920s, that's the building of the Library of Congress. And then in the 1920s, the librarian of Congress goes to Congress and says, we need another building. And Congress spends 10 years passing a law to create a new building. And the building is built in 1938 and it's called the Annex. And then in 1980, Congress passes a bill calling the Annex the Thomas Jefferson Building. And then in 1984, congress passes another bill it names the library the big building the big beautiful old building from 1893. it names that building the thomas jefferson building it then names the brand new building that was dedicated in 1984 and houses a third of the library of congress's collection including its wall library and a lot of its government and history collections the james madison building And then there's the matter of what you call the annex. In 1984, they rename it the John Adams Building. And so there is a monument to John Adams in Washington DC, and it's a peculiarly appropriate monument to John Adams. It's not a very distinguished looking building. It's a very boxy structure. It doesn't have any great distinction as an architectural gem. And John Adams didn't care about that because when he, as a young man in 1780 when he writes to Abigail and he says you know I could care about architecture but I really shouldn't it's my duty to care about government and to care about politics that's my job i must study politics diplomacy and war so that my children can study the other things like uh agriculture and uh, economics, and all those other things that will build a new government, things that he thinks John Quincy Adams someday will study. And he says, it's my children's job to study those things, that their children get to study art, sculpture, architecture, painting, and porcelain. So John Adams is indifferent to the architectural excellence of buildings, but John Adams would love the John Adams building of the library of Congress for one big reason. It's stuffed with books and John Adams loved books and he loved to collect books. He has a great library. The only founding guy who has a library that matches his is Thomas Jefferson. There are other guys who have good libraries, but they're not as great as Adams's and Jefferson's and, uh, Adams's library is now located in the Boston Public Library. But Adams would have been deeply proud of the John Adams building of the Library of Congress, and he would have viewed that as a perfect monument to him. So yes, he does have a monument, and it's the right one for him.
2: Richard, this has been a a wonderful conversation. What's next for you? Well,
1: I have other books
2: I've got to write. Uh, For example,
1: there's a series at Oxford called Very Short Introductions. They're very little books, and um, I've already written one called Hamilton, A Very Short Introduction, which my editor is now working on. And she's probably going to want me to rewrite it uh, a lot. And then I'm also, I've just begun the other book because you, you only get to write three volumes of the Very Short Introduction series. So I wrote one in 2005, called The Founding Fathers, a very short introduction, which I'm very proud of. And it's very, if I do say so myself, it's very good. The Hamilton book's uneven and I'm hoping to improve it. But then I'm going to write Jefferson a very short introduction, which I think I I know how to write. And then after that, I'm going to write a a concise biography of George Washington because I've written concise biographies of Thomas Jefferson in 2003, John Adams in 2020, and now George Washington. And after that, I will have my President's Trilogy, and then I guess there are other books that I'll write. But for now, I've got to write Jefferson, a very short introduction, and then I've got to write, um, I'm calling the new book, uh, The Man Who Gave Up Power, A Life of George Washington. Oh, wow. Because that's, that's who he was. Yeah. That's yeah. the main thing about him. He gave up power and he was known for giving up power. And the key thing, just as John Adams gave up power uh, when he was defeated for reelection, uh, George Washington was elected unanimously twice, in 1789 and then again in 1792. And then in 1796, he very deliberately chooses to give up power. And so that by March 4th, 1797, He's returning to private life, and that's what he wants to do. He's the man who gave up power, and that's why I want to call it that, because that's the real great achievement that he, uh, that he manages to score. Not the man who's elected unanimously twice, the man who gave up power.
2: Well, we look forward to reading all those, and we'd love to have you back on American POTUS. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Absolutely. I'm honored to have been here and I'm delighted to have been invited. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. We would appreciate it if you took the time to rate and review the show on the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate every word from everyone that listens to and participates in the podcast. We'd like to thank author R.B. Bernstein for joining us on this episode about John Adams. More information on his book, The Education of John Adams, can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. While you're there on our website, drop us a note. We'd love to see your questions or comments on this episode, or suggestions you might have for future topics. And if you haven't already, be sure to follow or like us on Facebook or Twitter, so you'll be the first to know about new episodes and announcements graphic design for American POTUS is by the Thought Bureau An original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from John Adams, quote, old minds are like old horses. You must exercise them if you wish to keep them in working order.